Starlink deploy confirmed. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition and lift off. What a beautiful sight. From WKMG in Orlando, this is Space Curious, the show that answers your intergalactic questions. I'm your host, Emily Speck. Stage one tanks pressing for flight. T minus 15 seconds. Eight, seven, six. SpaceX Dragon, we're go for launch. Let's light this candle. One, zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, Bob and Doug. All right, we're going to go outside. Gibson, you want to come outside? Come on. It's actually not that cloudy. We've had a lot of rain lately, so it's kind of a clear night. As of this recording, SpaceX has successfully launched nearly 700 satellites, known as the Starlink constellation. It's part of CEO Elon Musk's plan to create a space-based internet using a network of, eventually, up to 42,000 satellites. I have this app on my phone and it tells me what I'm looking at when I hold up the sky. So that is Saturn and Jupiter. And that would be the Milky Way if we could see it, but it's too bright. The concept is that the network of satellites will provide internet to anywhere in the world, even remote areas. And SpaceX isn't the only company with grand plans of providing the internet this way. Amazon, OneWeb, and Samsung are just some of the other companies looking to get in the internet game. If I press this button, it'll show me where all the satellites are. Okay. Whoa. That's a lot. SpaceX just happens to be the furthest along. They also have one advantage over their competitors. They provide their own ride to space for their satellites with the Falcon 9 rocket. That's an Iridium, another Iridium. They used to have the largest number of satellites until SpaceX started launching Starlink. The Starlink satellites fly in an elliptical orbit around Earth. And when sunlight reflects off the solar panels on the spacecraft, people down on Earth can see the bright lights floating two by two in a string in the night sky. The sight can be awe-inspiring and confusing to some. New 6 Orlando. At WKMG. New 6. We've taken a number of calls from people asking about the bright lights in the sky. Our view of the night sky has been changing ever since the light bulb was invented. The more light sources we turned on, from street lamps to bright lights shining from tall buildings, the more light pollution we created flooding the sky above us, making it hard to see the stars. There are fewer and fewer places where light pollution doesn't inhibit our view of the great beyond. I've never been able to look up and see the Milky Way where I've lived, and that's the case for almost 99% of the country. And now, with all these new lights in the sky created by massive satellite constellations, the astronomy community and those who study the stars with radio telescopes are concerned. Yeah, my name is Derek Demeter, um, and I'm the planetarium director at the Emil Bueller Perpetual Trust, try saying that five times fast, uh, planetarium at Seminole State College of Florida, and I, I'm currently residing in Lake Mary. So why don't we kind of just start with why it was such a concern for you and other astronomers and just other sky gazers in general about launching thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit? Well, there's two folds to it. There's the visual and then there's the radio situation. So you have these really fairly large satellites comparably to other satellites up there right now, um, and they're highly reflective. 
And so if you're putting in thousands, tens of thousands of these satellites, what's going to happen is as they pass over in the angle of the sun, they're going to light up. They're going to get very bright. They're going to basically be as bright as a star. What Derek is describing is the sun reflecting off the spacecraft, and that's what we see when we look up at the night sky and watch satellites or even the International Space Station pass overhead. And imagine having basically one of these Starlink satellites in the in the distance between the length of the moon and the sky. So you have these long, we call constellation trains of, of these satellites moving across the sky in all directions of the sky. The extra light in the sky is problematic for the way astronomers study the stars, because ideally, they only want to view or photograph light created from the natural sky. While the average viewer might say, well, it's really cool to see all these satellites up there, for an astronomer, you know, we are exposing telescopes to long, you know, long exposures of light. We're opening, basically a telescope is a bucket of light. And essentially, the more light we collect, the more what we call signal we collect. So the more detail we get in these objects that we're trying to look at. And what happens is you have these interferences like satellites get in the way. You get these long, bright streaks. Recently, Derek experienced what these bright satellite trains look like while he was trying to photograph a comet. Yeah, so I was obviously trying to get some uh, last moments with Comet Neowise. This was kind of right when it was approaching its uh, closest approach to Earth. And I wanted to get a few more nice higher resolution images of the comet. Uh, before it started to rapidly dim. Comet Neowise offered a rare, spectacular sight in the sky this summer as it passed Earth. According to NASA, it is considered the brightest comet visible from the Northern Hemisphere since 1997. So I wanted to capture that that final kind of moment um, as as it uh, leaves Earth. And, you know, this has been the first, like, true naked eye visible comet since, you know, Hale-Bopp. And Comet Neowise won't appear so close again in our lifetime, or for nearly 7,000 years. Here in Florida in the summertime, you get very limited opportunities to do some stargazing. So this was just the perfect perfect time to go. It was clear, wanted to get that last shot. And that's when it happened. It was weird because I wasn't seeing them with just my eyes. And, and I was noticing these large trails. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, this is startling. You saw one go through your field of view, and then you saw another one go through the field of view. And then another one followed after that. And then another one. And it just, it felt like a train. It felt like it just never ended. It was actually my first experience, uh, personal experience, with seeing these constellation trails. Do you know how many seconds would pass between seeing the satellites when you were photographing the sky? Probably through the field of view that I had, which was a couple of degrees of the sky, it probably moved um, up across the field of view in about 30, 20 to 30 seconds each object. Later, Derek used software to make one image using multiple frames of what he saw. He shared the finished photo of these Starlink trails. Each image had trails in different directions. So maybe one image had the streak of trails of Starlink uh, towards the top left. Another image might have them in the center. Another one had them in the bottom right. So when I started stacking my images, I was able to stack them in such a way where I was able to show literally all the streaks in the images. When you get this finished image with multiple images stacked together, you get, you see these, these streaks. And so you get the ones that were on the top left, the, in the middle, and the bottom. And all of a sudden now the image just has nothing but 
long streaks from these, uh, these satellites moving across the sky. The second major problem with large Starlink constellations can't be covered by a change in the hardware design because it has to do with the satellite frequency as they beam down fast internet here on Earth. Radio telescopes, you know, might want to look at that that frequency and they will have a hard time doing it because imagine having something coming in, shining a flashlight in front of your face every couple of seconds. And that makes it very difficult to listen to those certain frequencies, you know, which can help us understand the the universe and also potentially understand, uh, you know, the chances of maybe hearing extraterrestrial life. You know, I mean, so these are things that um, are are a concern for, uh, for astronomers. But it's not just scientists, space enthusiasts, and astronomers who should care about our view of the night sky. When I look up at the night sky, I'm reminded of the thousands of years of history that people have been inspired. A lot of our traditions today stem from uh, ancient people looking up at the night sky and feeling awe and wonder. I like to say that looking up at the night sky makes you feel more connected with other people around the world. It makes you go, wow, we're all looking at this together. We've all built our legacies and our traditions together. So I think it's kind of like, to me, I see it as more like a national park almost where, you know, we want to protect this for generations and generations to come to, to have those experiences uninterrupted. After the break, we'll talk about what SpaceX has done working with the astronomy community to fix some of these issues. Florida. Am I right? We have quirky people, politics, and don't forget about the gators and pythons. If you eat up all this weirdness like I do, you should check out another podcast from WKMG called Florida's Fourth Estate. It's hosted by WKMG anchors Ginger Gadsden and Matt Austin. Each week, they have a guest host who helps look at the issues impacting the Sunshine State. Look for new episodes every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello from SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California. My name is Jesse Anderson, and I'm a lead manufacturing engineer here at SpaceX. Not long after they made their intentions known, SpaceX began to hear complaints from the astronomy community about what they were doing to the night sky. So Musk and company began to try and figure out how to make their spacecraft less visible to stargazers. SpaceX has been working with a group of astronomers to mitigate the problems, but those experts say we're just now really coming to understand the complexity of this problem. Here's SpaceX lead manufacturing engineer Jessica Anderson from a recent Starlink launch talking about some of those efforts. As you may have seen during our last mission, we launched the first Starlink satellite with a deployable visor to block sunlight from hitting the brightest spots of the spacecraft. This demo satellite, also known as VisorSat, is just one of the many actions SpaceX has taken in collaboration with leading astronomical groups to mitigate the effects of satellite reflectivity. So we plan to equip all future Starlink satellites with deployable visors starting with the next mission later this month. According to SpaceX engineer Kate Tice, customers could begin using this space-based internet sometime in late 2020. A little update here about our beta testing and speed testing. Uh, The Starlink team is still in the beginning stages of our global space-based internet constellation 
but we are well into our first phase of testing with our private beta program, with plans to roll out a public beta later this year. Tice also talked about how they plan to use space lasers to transfer data. Yep, you heard that right. Uh, recently, as the Starlink team completed a test of two satellites in orbit that are equipped with our inter-satellite links, which we call space lasers. With these space lasers, the Starlink satellites were able to transfer hundreds of gigabytes of data. Once these space lasers are fully deployed, Starlink will be one of the fastest options available to transfer data around the world. In August... Hello, everyone. My name is Rick Feinberg. I'm the press officer of the American Astronomical Society. The members of an astronomy committee who have been working with SpaceX engineers released their findings about how to mitigate trashing the night sky and what the long-standing impact of these large constellations will be. The group hopes their findings and recommendations serve as guidelines for observatories and satellite operators to use going forward. Dr. Connie Walker with the National Science Foundation's NOAA Lab explains how companies could mitigate some of these issues. Not launching satellite constellations. While this may be an option, it's not viable for industry. Keeping them low, for instance, less than 600 kilometers in altitude, darkening satellites in all phases of the orbit, including launch, parking orbit, final orbit, and decay. Darkening satellites on station or final orbit to a fainter than seventh magnitude. Orienting satellites with the edge of the satellite toward the Earth so you have less surface, so you would reflect less sunlight. Lori Allen, also an astronomer with NORLAB, said their working group is purposely observing these satellites to determine if changes to the satellite hardware will work and what observatories can do. We know that there will be more in the future, and even with mitigations that we uh, employ over time, we know that some of them will continue to land in our data. So we'd like to understand their impacts on the science of astronomy now by making measurements of their brightnesses and other characteristics and quantifying those impacts as well as ways to mitigate those impacts. The working group of astronomers were able to determine that keeping satellites close to Earth at around 600 kilometers instead of at higher altitudes would be better for observations. OneWeb, a communication satellite manufacturing company, plans to create a space-based internet by launching around 49,000 satellites at higher orbits of around 1,200 kilometers. So far, they've launched only three batches of satellites. According to astronomer Patrick Seitzer with the University of Michigan, this could lead to problems. If a large constellation like OneWeb, 47,000 satellites at 1,200 kilometers is launched, Every 30-second exposure will have at least one satellite trail. Every 30-second exposure of this, no matter the time of night, during the summer in the Southern Hemisphere, will have at least one satellite trail. And uh, that is a great challenge for astronomers. Think about that for a second. If you looked up at the night sky and snapped a picture every 30 seconds using a telescope, you would capture at least one bright light from a human-made object. For astronomers who use long exposures to study the sky, that spells trouble. Another problem is that while SpaceX has already adapted its plan to work with the astronomy community, the plans from other companies who want to launch fleets of satellites is less clear. Amazon's internet constellation, known as Project Kuiper, will fly at lower orbits at around 630 kilometers and below. The constellation will also top out at more than 3,200 satellites not tens of thousands like some of its competitors. 
Amazon representatives continue to meet with the National Science Foundation and the American Astronomical Society to learn more about the impacts of existing satellite systems and how to prevent furthering the problems they can create. Clearly, SpaceX is uh, leading the charge in terms of trying to understand these issues. Physics professor Tony Tyson with the University of California and Davis and Vera C. Rubin Observatory said Amazon and OneWeb are beginning to work with the Astronomy Mitigation Group. Um, I've been contacted by both of them, but we're nowhere near any kind of uh, down-to-earth <laughs> engineering discussions on how to do this. And there she goes. The next 34 OneWeb satellites have begun their journey. OneWeb recently announced that it plans to start launching satellites again in December. This comes after filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy earlier this year. OneWeb will connect your device through a customized terminal that can be as small as a briefcase and just as compact. Whatever your location, the terminal encrypts your data and sends it at high speed to our satellite fleet passing overhead. The company was actively engaged with the astronomy community prior to bankruptcy and plans to re-engage very soon. Meanwhile, astrophysicist Dan Bachelador, who you heard from on our previous episode about space junk, argues that inspiration can also come from seeing something human-made in the night sky. One of the key reasons astronomy is so powerful is uh, people look up at the sky and wonder about our place in the universe and are marveled by the things they see in the sky. And I've certainly had the privilege and shock of actually seeing some Starlink Constellation satellites go overhead and it's completely like nothing you've ever seen before. Um, and my daughter was absolutely wowed when she saw 20 bright lights in a straight line go across the night sky. It's something we've never seen before. And it just gives, it's just another way that the sky is going to engage people in, uh, in the wonders of our universe, not now just only from the stars. He thinks that seeing amazing feats of technology in action could be inspirational on their own. So whilst I can understand astronomers are going to get upset, I also think that there's benefit for people on the Earth to be able to see, wow, that's a whole bunch of our satellites that we've put in orbit. I want to know more. I want to get involved with that. That's exciting. And it's also um, helping improve people's quality of life. Oh, wow. Iridium has a lot of satellites. That's a lot. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and they're all just kind of right there. That's kind of crazy to see that. As far as the stars that I can see, it's not really, really good. We're pretty close to downtown Orlando, so the light pollution, you can kind of see if I look to the northwest, that's the city, and you can see the, the lights that are rising up. So it kind of creates a, a damper on our vision for viewing the night sky. But I know there's a lot more out there if we were someplace, you know, that was like a, maybe a national park or like really far away from a, from a city. But yeah, I mean, there are not a ton of stars that I can see. It's kind of sad. Yeah, I would love to see more stars. I would, that would be really, really cool if we could see the Milky Way. That's well, not happening here. All right, I'm getting bit by mosquitoes, so I'm gonna call it a wrap.
What are you curious about? If you enjoyed this podcast and have more intergalactic questions for us to answer, submit your queries at clickorlando.com space. You can also reach out to me directly on Twitter at emspec. If you want to check out Derek Demeter's photo of the Starlink satellites, we've posted it on our website. You can find Space Curious wherever you download your favorite podcasts. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. This episode was recorded, edited, and co-produced by Zach Rosen, Tad Davis, and myself. A special thank you to the Florida Institute of Technology, Dan Bachelor, Derek Demeter, and the American Astronomical Society. I'm Emily Speck. Tune in next time for more stories that are truly out of this world. Until then, stay curious.